Good afternoon, Facebookers. Welcome to episode number one of Health Hackers. I am Gemma Evans. I'm a journalist and a presenter here in the UK. And this is my series that is just dedicated to Facebook. It's called Health Hackers because I'm going to be meeting some of the most pioneering and influential figures from the health and wellness space. And I'm going to be putting your questions and my questions to them so we can all learn together to be healthier and happier. And I'm sitting next to my first guest, Dr. Asim Malhotra. Thank you for having us here. In, we're in his Harley Street Clinic. Um, now, over the next sort of 20 minutes or so, we're going to be taking your questions for Asim. So put them in the comment section below. If you see me looking down at my laptop here, um, I'm not being rude. It's because I'm looking at your questions and I'm looking at what you're saying and who's joined our conversation. And uh, I can put all your questions and comments to Asim as we go. So why don't we get going by Asim, perhaps you can give us a bit of an overview of who you are and where people might have seen you before already. So I am a cardiologist by background. So I was qualified as a doctor in 2001, which means I've been qualified for over 16 years. And I've been specialising in cardiology for around seven or eight years of that. And uh, I, uh, around 2010, 2011, working in the NHS, I trained as what we call an interventional cardiologist, which means I was doing keyhole heart surgery on patients oh, wow. and essentially treating people um, which benefit most from having heart attacks. And we kind of do a plumbing job and we restore blood flow to their arteries. And I had a bit of an epiphany moment when one of my patients uh, on the ward round, after coming in with a heart attack in the middle of the night, the next day I'm going around the, on the ward round and giving him advice, prescribing him medications and telling him to stop smoking and talk about healthy diets. And while I'm having this conversation with him, he gets served a burger and chips. And he looks at me and says, Doc, how do you expect me to change my lifestyle when you're serving me the same crap that brought me here in the first place? Mm -hmm. And it made me realise... Apologies actually, for the language, if there are any children watching. <laughs> Carry on. But, um, but, you know, actually, there should be a school right now, shouldn't there? Half two? There shouldn't be any children Yeah, good watching. point. If any children are watching, you should be at school. <laughs> anyway, But anyway, on. so, uh, yeah, so I had this uh, epiphany moment. And I realised, actually, up to that point, that we were having more and more pressure on the system. Um, and uh, obesity, you know, kept coming in the headlines. And I was seeing more and more patients who had more chronic diseases. And I realized at that point, you know, my kind of looking ahead, um, I came to the conclusion, unless we nip this in a bud or do something about it drastically now or start doing something about it, this is only going to get worse. And what are the headlines we're hearing every day now, mm -hmm. really? Um, there is a big problem in, with our healthcare crisis. So I went on a bit of a journey to try and contribute in my way to try and help solve this obesity problem. And um, very early on, I met Jamie Oliver. I'd, I, written him in, I wrote him an email asking him to sort out or help sort out hospital food, which, you know, serving junk food and not very yeah, palatable. Yeah. And uh, he ended up inviting me around to dinner with himself and a number of other doctors. And really that's when I started to really get heavily involved in the journalism side, the medical journalism side of it as well, and to write about it and to campaign. Um, so that journey and that campaign has kind of made Asim fairly famous uh, for being a bit controversial, if I can say that, because... Uh, you disagree with the kind of conventional advice, the conventional way that we've been told to eat for probably the last three decades. So what is wrong with the way we've been told to eat? Well, I think the first thing to say, Gemma, is, um, you know, medicine itself, science evolves. Medicine is not an exact science. I always teach my medical students when I teach them that, um, you know, it's more the practice of the art of probability. 
And in fact, the man who's considered what we call the father of evidence-based medicine. So when we see patients, we want to give them information and treat them according to the totality of the data that's available and evidence is there. And he's considered a guy called David Sackett. He's now passed away. And uh, he said something very interesting. He said 50% of what you learn in medical school will turn out to be dead wrong or outdated within five years of your graduation. 50%, that was his belief. The yeah. trouble is, you don't know which half, so you have to learn to learn on your well, own. Yeah. And we, things have evolved. I mean, I uh, actually initially got a lot of flack in 2013. I'd done my own investigation on sugar, having looked at the research and the science that had come out, and specifically looked at what the kind of advice that was being given to people in this country, both mm -hmm. on food labeling and from respected organizations, and concluded that we were being told, in effect, to be consuming 22 and a half teaspoons of sugar a day as part of a healthy balanced diet and I tried to go into the root causes behind this and, and basically discovered lots of commercial conflicts of interest at very high levels uh, within the medical hierarchy nutrition hierarchy and I thought it needed to be exposed so at that time and I remember 2013 I went on BBC breakfast and sky and um, there were people coming out saying, what's this guy talking about? Sugar is a problem or sugar is toxic or it's not linked to obesity. And where we are now, we're now having a sugary drinks tax coming in in 2000 and next year, April 2018. On the um, NHS website, and it's not just the NHS, there are others who advocate um, having a diet where the base of our meals is on starchy foods like potatoes, bread, rice or pasta. So where do you stand on that? Yeah, sadly, that is uh, outdated, flawed, uh, and I would say wrong and harmful advice. And that, that's my view. I've said this uh, many times, I've written about it. And the reason for that is, is that when you look at the big problems of chronic disease that are affecting the Western world and the UK, type 2 diabetes is probably the biggest problem. You know, uh, uh, as a disease on its own, it's the single biggest contributor to costs on the NHS. And type 2 diabetes is a condition of an intolerance for individuals to be able to process, metabolize carbohydrates. In particular, process or refined carbs. So these are carbohydrates that lack fiber, which is exactly the kind of things that have been promoted on the NHS website. Okay. And we know that consumption of these sorts of carbohydrates has increased in the last few decades. And surprise, surprise, we've got an increase in type 2 diabetes okay. and obesity. So, so um, this is your view. The NHS isn't here to defend itself, obviously. But is your view that that information is out of date because yeah. it's so high in sugar because processed foods are. Yeah. Is that I mean, what you mean, ultimately, a lot of these foods get converted very rapidly and absorbed into the bloodstream as glucose, and they, um, you know, this is the this is the the, the problem, especially for type twos. Mm -hmm. So we know that people who cut the refined carbs from their diet have type two diabetes. Many of them go into remission. You know, some people call it reversal, but remission. Their blood glucose levels normalize off medications. Many of the others who are on medications are at the very least able to reduce the dosage of their drugs. And Gemma, that's also important because of two other reasons. One, the drugs for type 2 diabetes for um, values that are important to patients are not very effective. What I mean by that is that they overall don't improve lifespan and in most cases do not prevent cardiovascular death or stroke. So they make Have you found that in studies? Oh, it's very clear. Oh, that's irrefutable. Okay. That's very clear. That's when you look at the totality of the evidence. So that's one aspect. So patients are not told this, which I think, you know, the ethical considerations there. We need to be more honest and open with patients about the limitations of these drugs. They do have some minor benefit in preventing what we call microvascular complications. So that is 
preventing eye disease, kidney disease, even nerve disease, but to a small extent. In addition to that, there mm -hmm. are harms. In America, it's estimated that every year there are 100,000 hospital admissions, emergency room visits, because of side effects of these medications. So really the whole system is in a bit of a mess when it comes to management of type 2 diabetes. The first line treatment should be a low refined carbohydrate diet, and of course medications do have a role, but their benefits are very marginal, and we need to be honest and open and transparent with patients about okay. that. Okay, this is your view. Let's well, well, not about even view, Gemma, this is what the science says. Okay, let's talk about how many teaspoons of sugar should we be having a day, and what does that look like? Because it's hidden in food, yeah. it's not like we get spoons and just eat it. So when we're talking about sugar, I think we need to be quite clear that we're talking about added sugar. So this is stuff that's added to foods, which you know is prevalent in more than 70% of what you purchase in the supermarket. Okay? So the right. food industry have added it to food to make it more palatable, it helps with shelf life. And the science is telling us, certainly there is evidence suggested, it's also something that doesn't make you feel full. So it's mm. going to be, in effect, an appetite stimulant. So if you're having food with added sugar, you're more likely to consume more as well. So what about it? Is it a nutrient? Is it something we require? No, absolutely not. There's no biological requirement whatsoever from added sugar in the diet. So if you're talking about from a health perspective, first of all, it's not required. So at the very least, it's a source of unnecessary calories. Um, and therefore, the optimal, I've written about this, I published, in a, in a, I published on this in, on a website in America, which is a huge website for doctors around the world, one of the biggest, called Medscape. And I made it clear that for health purposes, the optimal amount of added sugar consumption is zero. Zero. Now, the World Health Organization has now made a maximum limit, recommended limit. They've suggested it should be no more than 5% of your calories. So for the average adult, male and female, mm. that's around six teaspoons of added sugar a day. But to put that in perspective, yeah. one regular sugary drink, without naming any particular brand, uh -huh. so say a can of cola or a chocolate bar, has almost nine teaspoons of added sugar, which basically is one and a half times the maximum limit that's recommended per day. And many people are consuming much more than that, yeah. Gemma. So the average UK citizen is consuming at least two to three times what is now recommended a limit for health. That's how bad the situation yeah, is. I can imagine. Um, Facebookers, if you're just joining us live now, hello, welcome to Health Hackers episode one. I keep looking down at my laptop because I'm looking at all your questions, so thank you for those. We're going to come on to them shortly. Um, I just want to hear a bit more from Asim about some official myth-busting because we've talked about sugar but there's also fat which becomes quite a controversial area. Um, is it true or false that saturated fat clogs arteries okay. and leads to a heart attack? So several months ago myself and two very eminent cardiologists, much more eminent than I am, uh, Professor Rita Redberg who is the editor of medical journal JAMA Internal Medicine in America. She's a professor of cardiology in San Francisco. Pascal Meyer, who is editor of BMJ Open Heart, both practicing doctors as well, they see patients. Um, we wrote an editorial in the British Journal of Sports Medicine actually called Saturated Fat Does Not Clog the Arteries. And coronary artery disease or heart disease is a chronic inflammatory condition which can be prevented and treated essentially through healthy lifestyle interventions. So the evidence is very clear that from saturated fat in the diet does not actually lead to clogging of the heart arteries. Mm -hmm. And it's an overall dietary pattern, but both for people who are healthy and for people who even have heart disease who reduce saturated fat, there's absolutely no impact on heart, heart attacks or death or stroke. 
So I think this has been a misguided focus. And so the answer to your question is a very plain and simple no. Mm -hmm. Now, when you talk about facts... Tell, I, us, tell, I, us what good, tell us what the good facts are that people should well, be Well, okay, so the first thing I should say, when we talk about fat, and I don't want to oversimplify things, but actually sometimes certain simplistic messages can be quite powerful yeah, in, in yeah. the way they convey information. And what I've said is, you know, uh, providing you cut out the refined carbs and processed food, eating fat is about as likely to make you fat as eating green vegetables mm -hmm. to turn you green. And the reason for that is fat generally, there are two, two, two things I would say when it comes to weight. One, it's quite satiating, it keeps you full. So you're less likely to consume more. Two, when it comes to its impact on glucose and insulin, and glucose insulin resistance, which is basically you know, the long-term effects of you eating too many processed carbs over, over a period of time, is actually the biggest risk factor for heart attack and linked to many diseases. Really? So high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, some independent associations with dementia and cancer as well. And fat has the least impact compared to protein and carbohydrates on blood glucose mm -hmm. and insulin. So that's just a, a very initial kind of more um, straightforward way of, of approaching fat. Now, you asked a very good question. What are the so-called healthy fats? Well, Am I saying saturated? You look like you were bored of that question. Like, what are the so-called healthy fats? You get asked that a lot. No, I do. I do. And it's a very good question. But actually, saturated fat is basically found in... We should talk about foods, I think, right? We should move away from macronutrients. Okay, yeah. So, you know, we should talk about... When people think about saturated fat, they think about butter, cheese, Bacon. you know, red meat, all that kind of thing. Yeah. So, uh, when it comes to heart disease, there is no strong link. Am I saying that it's good for you from a heart perspective? No, I'm not saying that. There is some evidence suggesting that dairy-saturated fats may be protective, from recent uh, study done by Cambridge University, may be protective against heart disease, it's not definitive. But what I can say is there's no harm. And the other thing I can say is when you're eating these foods that are nutritious, you're getting good nutrition as well. Yeah. So from a heart disease perspective, they're not harmful. There may be some benefit from dairy. And then when you talk about where is the best available evidence about the foods that are high in fat that are going to be protective, the clearest evidence seems to be from extra virgin olive oil. And what I do is I advise my patients to have consume at least four tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil mm -hmm. per day because there are good studies that are showing that it has a protective effect, certainly when it comes to Can you ever have too much olive oil? Because I used to eat up to nine or ten tablespoons of olive oil a day. That was because I was in a, a ketogenic diet, which is high fat and very low carb. Um, was eating ten tablespoons a day too much? I mean, I felt Listen, great. I, I do that quite often myself. Good. So I, I cook in olive oil. Um, I, I drown some of my food in olive oh, oil. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love so, that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> right, keep putting your questions on my laptop so that I can see them. And you just put them in the comment section below and I can see them. And that's why I keep looking at my screen. I'm not being rude. Let's talk about this, Asim. This is Asim's book, The Piopi Diet. Why is it called The Piopi Diet? So... The, there is a southern Italian village called Pioppi, which is uh, in the province of uh, Salerno, not very far from Naples. And this village is actually quite famous because where we went wrong with our dietary advice happened in the 70s and 80s in the USA and then the UK. And a very prominent scientist called Ansel Keys, an American scientist, was actually the biggest propagator of the message where we got this fear of fat and cholesterol. He, li he linked it and correlated it with heart disease in what something called the Seven Countries Study. And we've moved on from there now. But what we know, when we look at the totality of the data, what he had available 
to him at the time was not robust, it was not the most robust science, it was flawed and it was incomplete. And we now know that a lot of the things he said were flawed and essentially wrong. But Ansel Keys spent um, almost six months of the year for almost 30 years of his career living in this beautiful southern Italian village called Pioppi, where even now and then they had a very good uh, lifespan. Okay. The average life expectancy is close to 90. Close to more, 90. Than, more than 10 years than the average Tour de France cyclist. Really? And they do no prescribed exercise, I, they have no gyms. I read in the book, some of them live to 107. <laughs> yeah. So they're, they're, and also they're very healthy into old age. So we wanted to, myself, my co-author Donald O'Neill, who's a former uh, Irish international a athlete and a filmmaker, we went to this village to see what was, to experience the village, how do these people live, it's only a population of 200. And also how could we tie in their lifestyle and the way they live with what we know of up-to-date evidence on things like exercise and diet and yeah. stress, etc. And we married those two together to produce this book. Um, so that's really the history of, uh, of Piopi. So what were the secrets of the people of Piopi? Why were they living till they were 100? Okay, so there are a number of different things, yeah. and that's really crucial because the book is not, you know, we use the word diet, but actually diet comes from the original Greek word diata, which mm. means lifestyle. People have forgotten that. Which it should be. So diet is really crucial and important, and in, in many ways probably the most important in the hierarchy of health, but actually there are so many other things that these people do as well at the same time. So when it comes to diet, I say low sugar, very low in refined carbohydrates, and we, we, we need to talk about pasta and bread as well, because we'll come back okay, to that. Because okay. that and we've got so many questions, I am going to put your questions <laughs> to the scene, stay with us. Yes. So, one that's low in refined carbs and sugar, one that has, you know, at the base of the diet, you talked about the, what the NHS are recommending yeah. the base, it should be lots of vegetables, preferably non-starchy. This is a piopi diet. Oily should, fish. The base should be Oily veggies. fish, extra virgin olive oil, nuts, handful of nuts every day. One that doesn't have lots of sugar and, and uh, carbs, doesn't involve processed food, and the bit in the middle doesn't matter too much, as long as you're getting good nutrition. Okay. So that's the diet aspect. Mm. Then you've got um, exercise. Now many people exercise for the purposes of weight loss, but there's a problem there, because two, for two reasons. When it comes to weight loss, almost all of it is down to what you're eating. That doesn't mean exercise is beneficial. The second aspect is... I mean, that is quite, that is quite something. Because a lot of people believe that uh, going to the gym and doing an hour of cardio every day will help them lose weight, and they can eat donuts later. Yeah, I mean that's 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 a, wrong. That's absolutely right? wrong, okay. and it's harmful actually. Um, you know, I wrote an editorial in the British Journal of Sports Medicine with two sports scientists, very famous sports scientists, in 2015, and it was actually called "It's Time to Bust the Myth of Physical Inactivity and Obesity." You cannot run a bad diet. It's diet that helps you lose weight. Absolutely. And anyone can look at our article and have a look at it. Maybe. Absolutely. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean we're saying exercise is good no. for you. But what we want to do is shift the mindset that, and the same thing applies to diet as well, is that we're all vulnerable to diet-related disease. There's no such thing as a healthy weight. Now, you can have a very unhealthy weight, and people at obesity at extreme levels or very overweight have an increased risk. But there is also a very increased risk for people who have a normal body mass index, have so other certain markers really? that you can identify. Yeah. So there's no such thing as a healthy weight, we're all vulnerable, but the same solutions that tackle everybody, tackle the obesity problem as well, which is the right kind of diet and what we say should be mindful movement. So my co-author, Donald O'Neill, has this great sort of uh, catchphrase, if you like, exercise is overrated, movement is underrated. 
So what, what does that mean? Well, it basically means that, you know, just keep moving. You don't have to be doing intense exercise. I mean, right. of course, there is some evidence for some, but for most people, certainly in Piopi, and yeah. if you look at blue zones around the world, these people really were just moving all the time. They're walking everywhere. So we do advise yeah, that do at least do about 150 minutes of, of uh, a week um, of walking, oh, brisk walking. So in so the half an hour. Yeah, in the editorial we say actually 22. We narrow it down to 22 minutes a day. There you go. 22 minutes a day moving. And don't sit for prolonged periods of time. Veggies. Don't so sit oh, for more than 45 minutes. We're okay. Of which, talking of we're which, okay. We've been alright. It's so been far. 22 minutes. Right. So, let's, let's, so yeah. Yes. Yeah, so every 45 minutes, get up. Even if it's for a couple of minutes walking around, having a stretch, do that. Do not sit for, or stay in one position for more than 45 minutes. So that's on the movement side. Okay. And then the other thing that we often forget, and we feel this. I mean, so stress. Uh-huh. Okay, chronic stress is a big risk factor for chronic disease and premature death. We know that women who have to, um, you know, bring up disabled children and the stress of that, mm-hmm. on average, they can live twenty years less than everybody really? else. Um, we know that stress affects the genes that control the aging process, and there are some pilot studies that have shown that even three months of stress reduction activities, ideally combined with diet and the right kind of exercise. Um, can actually affect genes that control the aging process. So it's never too late. Can you pass those genes on to your children? No, these are, well, no, no. no. no so these are what, these are genes that are kind of, we call epigenetics. it epigenetics, yeah. yeah. So, um, so that's, that's something we've neglected. One good marker for that is sleep. So we want to be getting at least seven hours of sleep a night. And I think that's something personally I have at times struggled with. We've, you know, we're, so, we're doing so many things these days and we're on social media late at night, etc. And getting a good sleep is really important for your health. And all of this, Gemma, comes, mm-hmm. fits into what is the real issue we should be focusing on, which is insulin resistance, which I talked about earlier. And if you do all of these things, or at least try and do all of these things to the best of your, you know, the best that you can, you're going to be much, much better off in terms of preventing these sort of diseases that don't just affect your physical health, they affect your mental health too. And the other thing I think on that note we shouldn't forget is yeah. the fact that um, the people of Piopi had a very strong sense of community. Social isolation itself is a big risk factor for premature death. You know? yeah. So spend more time with friends and family, socialise, physically meet people, do more of that than spending time did on social you, media. Did you find, um, you might not have looked, but did the people of Piopi have good teeth considering they didn't eat sugar? That's a very good point. Um, I did not notice any, I can't remember noticing any particularly bad teeth. No. Maybe that was to do with dentistry, and, uh, we don't know. People often ask about how much sugar should you be having? Yes. Well, all I can say, the people of Piopi, interesting, traditionally, now there are people who can say, hold on a minute, I go to the Mediterranean region, they eat kebabs and pasta and we have when, when we talk about Piopi diet, we're talking about the traditional diet when yeah. people were worried about heart disease and they had very low prevalence of heart disease. And um, they had dessert only on Sundays, once a week. Sugar was Treat. expensive, it was rare. So that's a real treat. Pizza, once or twice a month. But on, in addition to that, the type of bread they were consuming was made and baked in the home. Um, and I was at a recent talk uh, in Zurich uh, where I was one of the speakers and there was a, a, quite a world-renowned diabetologist, endocrinologist, and he, he told us that the modern bread is a very different type of entity to what they, the baked kind of homemade bread in terms of its glycemic index, is yeah. 60% higher. So, and if you go to America, Gemma, I have been, I mean, I'm, most, almost all supermarket bread, I couldn't find any bread that didn't have added sugar in it. Mm-hmm. That's not what traditional bread was, was about. So even if people talk about this Mediterranean starchy carbohydrates, 
the type of carbohydrates they're recommending that people who are getting in the modern day or is available to the modern day is a very different type of carbohydrate that was available in Ansel Keys' time. And pasta in their diet was never a main course. It was always a small starter. And if you think about that, if you're having just a small bit of pasta, you don't have insulin resistance anyway. You don't have much sugar in your diet. You're not snacking. You're moving all the time. You can understand why they were actually pretty healthy. Okay, uh, let's move on to some questions. So, uh, Rob says, there are so many health gurus and a lot of fake news out there. Yeah. That means when controversial ideas emerge, it's difficult to know how much credence to give them. Can you give someone with no scientific background a checklist of how <laughs> they should assess what they read online? You know, it's a really good question, Gemma. Uh, and one thing I'd like to say is that I don't see myself, I don't want to be a health guru. You know, I am doing this... It's too late for that. <laughs> well, you know, why am I doing this? My, my duty and responsibility is to scientific integrity and to the patient in front of me. Okay. Ultimately, what drives me with my mission and campaign is my patients. I learn from them. I'm there to do, be, act on their behalf as an advocate to help improve their health. Mm -hmm. And I think the big figure thing, before I give you a, a checklist of what I use... Yeah. I spoke um, to the former editor of the New England Journal of Medicine a few weeks ago. The New England Journal of Medicine is considered the number one impact factor medical journal in the world. And the former editor of that journal, Marcia Angel, after 20 years concluded that it was, that she reluctantly concluded over 20 years that she could no longer trust much of the published literature that was published or rely on the authority of trusted medical guidelines. That's, you can see that online. That's her and quote. That's yeah. her quote. And she said, and I, I, I want to repeat this because I think it makes... People need to think about this. The real crisis and battle we have in healthcare when it comes to dietary advice or modern medicine is one of truth versus money. Mm -hmm. And sadly, there has been too much commercial influence on the science. There is also flawed science that gets taken advantage of by commercial influence. And then all the public health messaging revolves around that. So what is a checklist? Well, I think first of all, read whatever you're reading, Who's written it? What's their background? Um, what are alternative other people saying? And what's their background as well? And often, unfortunately, it's very difficult, to be fair, for most people to see, or it's very easy for them to get confused, because I know, and I'm not going to name anybody here, but I know there are people that are writing things that have the veneer of being independent. And I know very well that these guys are funded by the food industry or can certainly not make independent advice because they have financial interests which are not being declared. And that is very prevalent across, across a lot of established mainstream media. Do other doctors feel the same way as you or have you spoken to your peers about this? Yeah, well, I mean, I, uh, part of what I've been doing, I've realised that, you know, for me, we have to change the system if we're going to, we're going to have to improve the system. And that means speaking to the medical hierarchy, the people at the very top, uh, speaking to politicians, I've had lots of conversations. I've published with people at the very top of the medical establishment as well, who I've had conversations with. And, you know, most people, Gemma, this is not about finger pointing, it's not about conspiracy theories. Most people want to do the right thing. This is, unfortunately, the way the situation has arisen where we have so much commercial influence over a lot of stuff that we read, a lot of stuff that comes even from very prominent academic institutions is the fact that, you know, money really, you know, this is the way business has been done. And we've been a bit naive in accepting certain things as gospel truth, something published in a medical journal as fact, when we don't understand or realise there are limitations there. 
Now, that is not the job of the general public to sort out. It is actually the job of the medical profession. And it's the job of scientists and people of influence and power that can change the system once they realise that it is far from perfect and, in fact, in many ways, harming the population. So I have realised that and I have done my bit and I, you know, I, I meet people and speak to people all the time. I go to Parliament, I speak to politicians because I know that most people, when they're given the information... I believe in democracy, they want to do the right mm -hmm. thing, but they need to know what's going on first. So your, your tech letter, Rob, like you said, just to reiterate, is see the source of the study yeah. or the article yes. and check for any Absolutely. conflicts of interest yeah, in definitely. who sponsored the study yeah. and who published it. Absolutely. Um, question from Rosie. Would you, ask, would you ask Asim where he stands on the wheat debate? Are all grains <laughs> bad for us? Even ones our ancestors thrived on like rye yeah. and is making our own bread good for us? Yeah, so I think it's all a question of dose. And I hate using this word everything in moderation. I wouldn't use that because for people with type 2 diabetes, consuming sugar in moderation yeah. is moderately poisoning them. Mm. Okay, um, I think that I personally do not eat any refined carbohydrates. Okay, Or I, if I do, I see it as a treat. I don't either. So, and again, we, a lot of what the modern, the modern grain is very different to what people were consuming mm -hmm. many, many years ago. So I think if you're going to have bread, if you can bake your own bread, I mean, brilliant. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's definitely going to be better. But it would also be having that in very small quantities. If, if Rosie bakes her own bread, should she use a specific type of flour? Um, I don't think that's that. Uh, I don't think it makes much difference. I know that the problem is even the wholemeal. If you look at the, there's a very good table in the Piotr Diet book, mm. and in fact, it's also it was uh, taken from a reference from uh, an article published by uh, Dr. David Unwin, who's a GP um, up north, who's done a lot of work with his patients and he's you know, got people off medications for type 2, uh, and Professor David Haslam, who's a very good friend of mine and the former chair of the National BC Forum. And there's a good table that shows even, you know, even having wholemeal bread can actually significantly spike your blood glucose levels. Uh, Jane says, great first guest. I know there's a difference between cholesterol and oxidised cholesterol, the latter being one of the culprits, but how do you test for that? Yeah, you can't, it's not that easy and straightforward, you can't get it tested easily in the NHS. What I would say, actually, I wouldn't even worry about testing for so-called oxidised cholesterol. There are other markers that indirectly tell you um, whether you're oxidising your cholesterol, and really it comes down to the insulin resistance issue. So if triglycerides and HDL yeah. are actually much more predictive for the overwhelming majority of people about risk of heart disease. So oxidised cholesterol is one of those biomarkers that we want to keep down? Yes, so. it basically means that your LDL cholesterol is more likely or more inflammatory, more likely to contribute to heart disease. But actually, Gemma, to be honest, um, I would say that we need to shift our focus away from even being obsessed with cholesterol and lowering cholesterol. You've got to understand, first and foremost, and it was because of flawed science, mm -hmm. you know, we have a multi-billion dollar, almost trillion dollar industry with both food and drugs that has focused on or thrives off the fear of cholesterol and wants us to push it down as low as possible. And that is fatally flawed. The evidence suggests that is not the right approach. There are other side effects that happen. And actually, I was involved, interestingly, in a systematic review where we looked at all of the data available in people aged over the age of 60, isolating the LDL, the so-called bad cholesterol. And what we found, and this was published in the BMJ Open last year, that there was no association with heart disease with LDL cholesterol if you're over 60. And there was an inverse association with mortality. In other words, the higher LDL, the less likely you were to die. 
Now, the mechanism for that is because cholesterol is one of the most vital molecules in the body. Without it, we would die. It has so many functions, but one of them is also involved in the immune system. Elderly people are vulnerable to infections, dying from things like pneumonia or stomach illnesses. Mm -hmm. And it's postulated that was, may well have been the reason why there was less deaths in people with higher cholesterol when they're older. Uh, talking of cholesterol, I've got a couple of questions on statins uh, and medication. Right. Nigel says he's refused medication from his GP and says, if you have high blood pressure, how do you get it down without taking statins? Okay, well, so just there may be a bit of a misunderstanding there. First of all, statins are prescribed. They're uh, traditionally cholesterol-lowering drugs, but they're actually prescribed based upon risk, so not cholesterol, right. looking at lots of different things. So look at your risk of heart attack or stroke in the next 10 years. So that's the first thing. I'll come on stat back to statins in a second. Um, blood pressure is something else. And blood pressure is important. I mean, it's mm. the number one risk factor overall, and it's linked to insulin resistance, but it's the number one risk factor for death globally. And it's the biggest risk factor for stroke. Now, um, when it comes to blood pressure, and it's going to vary from person to person, certainly there are certain things you can do. I've seen many patients that have significantly reduced their blood pressure, come off medications even, when they've cut out the processed carbohydrates and sugar from their so diet. So cutting out yeah. added sugars in their teas and coffees, cutting out bread. Well, all, no, even, I mean, all added sugars and all the treats and everything else as well, not just teas and coffees. Mm -hmm. It's looking at what sugars in the food you're eating. Okay. But yes, cu cutting out bread and pasta and rice and potatoes. Does it count, uh, what, if, what if Nigel likes eating bananas? I mean, they're quite high in fructose. Yeah. Would that kind of sugar be a problem? I, I mean, if you're just having a... Listen, what, it all also depends on how much you're eating, but I would say if you're having a couple of portions of fruit every day, as long as you're not doing the other stuff and you're having lots of veggies, then it's fine. It's mainly the, the, the ones that don't have fiber in them. So I would say um, cut those out. In terms of uh, exercise as well, we know that regular activity, just being you know, moving all the time, that also can lower blood pressure too. So I think those two things you can do and then see what happens, but it may significantly reduce your blood pressure. It may have a marginal effect. Um, Linda says, are statins necessary post-MI? Can you explain what MI is? Yeah, so MI is myocardial infarction. Okay. That's basically me, it means heart attack. Okay. Now, traditionally, we as cardiologists have handed out statins like Smarties to people with heart disease having a heart attack. Um, because if there is a group that benefits most from statins based upon the published literature, and I say that with inverted commas, published literature, because almost all of this uh, information that we rely upon to make clinical decisions on statins is sponsored by the drug companies. So we have to take it with a pinch of salt because they're there to make a profit and sell their drug. <laughs> okay. But if you take that at face value, uh -huh. take that face value um, and accept it as gospel truth, which I say we take with a pinch of salt. If you've had a heart attack, taking a statin every day for five years, there's a one in 83 chance it will save your life and about a one in 39 chance it will prevent a recurrent heart attack. So that benefit for a lot of people they would see as quite significant. Doctors would see that as quite significant. For an individual, I think it's important for them to know what their actual benefit is. But certainly if someone's had a heart attack, my default option is to put them on a statin. Okay. But if they decided, right. once they knew the information and thought, well, I don't really fancy those statistics or I'm not very keen on a statin, I would respect their decision. Okay. Well, the drug companies aren't here to defend themselves, but let's talk about you and your patients. You you wouldn't prescribe a statin. 
No, no. I, so for Unless people, they said I no. want. So the way, so what it's about is about, I, we talk about something called shared decision making, which is a way we need to move towards forward in medicine. Yeah. So this is not a kind of, you must take this pill or don't take this pill. It's having a conversation with the patient saying, listen, what does the evidence tell us about the benefits? What are the potential harms? And then I want you to make the decision. And if the patient says, doc, I'm not sure you decide that that's fine. We can give our advice. But most patients actually take it on board and then make a decision themselves. So that's the way we should okay. do it. I don't think it's a clear black and white about, you know. So would I prescribe statin? Of course. If somebody wants to have a statin and I see a patient and I've had a, an informed discussion with mm. them and they want to have a statin, I'm more than happy to prescribe it. But you would tell them of what you know Absolutely. or what you believe is out well, there. It's, well, not I believe, it's just what's published. What, you, what literature you yeah, have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this is in your kind of remit, scene, but another question is, if you have naturally high uric acid levels in your blood, how do you avoid gout without resorting to doctor's prescriptions again? Would that be Yeah, I mean, it's slightly going off a little bit, to be honest. Okay. I mean, I think uric acid, yeah, is related to gout, but I mean, it, I would speak to your GP because it depends on whether you've got symptoms of gout, and then that also depends on what treatment you should have. We know uric acid is linked to added sugar, though, so there is some good data showing that Excess sugar consumption can increase uric acid. So keep sugar down yeah. again. Um, Gary says, what's the best way to keep cholesterol down in terms of fitness and diet? <laughs> you don't want to keep it down, though. Why keep it down? So, okay, good question. Did you hear that, Gary? You don't want to keep it down. You want to actually do everything you can to improve your health. So, okay, I'm going to quote Professor Rita Redberg here, editor of JAMA Internal Medicine, very eminent, prestigious cardiologist based in California, and she says, cholesterol is just a lab number who cares about lowering cholesterol unless it benefits the patient? I wrote about this in The Guardian, so you can look it up. What she means by this is the focus on lowering cholesterol by any means is misguided. What you want to do is actually focus on certain things for your health and your cholesterol profile will probably improve. So what do I mean by that? If you look at cholesterol and risk, there's something you can look up online, you can Google it, called Q-Risk Calculator, the Q-Risk. Q-R-I-S-K, Q-Risk. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it gives you lots of different things that you can plug in and it gives you an estimated, it's not perfect, an estimated risk of heart attack or stroke in the next 10 years. When they look at the cholesterol aspect of that risk, they don't use high cholesterol. They use a ratio of your total cholesterol divided by your HDL, the good cholesterol. Now, why is that important? I'll give you an example. So the ratio is what's crucial. I can have a patient come to me whose total cholesterol is seven. Now, most people hear that think, my God, that's really, really high. high. But the HDL is two. Okay. Seven divided by two, the ratio is three and a half. Mm -hmm. I can have another patient coming to me whose total cholesterol is four. And they think, wow, my cholesterol's great. The HDL is one. Their total ratio okay. is four. So the, the person with a cholesterol of seven actually has a lower risk based upon their cholesterol profile. We want the, the ratio to be low. Exactly. But mm -hmm. I wouldn't be overly obsessed with that either necessarily for doing everything else. The reason I tell you this is... One of the strongest bits of evidence to try and prove cause and effect of any interventional treatment is something called a randomized controlled trial. And there have been two randomized controlled trials that have got prominent publicity that have shown what we call outcome benefit. That means that when they followed people up, there were less strokes, less heart attacks, less death. One was called the PREDIMED study, which was a government-sponsored Spanish study where people who had extra virgin olive oil and nuts versus people who were advised to follow a low-fat Mediterranean diet had less strokes. And then there was a Lyon heart study, which was a study in France, in Lyon, where they um, basically compared people with a, had a Mediterranean diet versus an American Heart Association low-fat diet, and the people on the Mediterranean right. diet had much less death. 
The point I'm making is, when they looked at both groups in both studies, no difference in cholesterol between the two mm. groups, which tells us that the effects on health of diet, with the data we have available, is completely independent of cholesterol. And we know that cholesterol as a risk factor has been grossly exaggerated. I would say, and this is, this is my analysis mm. of the data that's available, and I've been given talks on this, for the overwhelming majority of people, high cholesterol that people understand as being high cholesterol is not a risk factor for heart disease. Wow, that's something. Uh, we've got so many questions here, and we, we've already gone on to like 41 <laughs> minutes. Okay, wow. um, you were talking earlier about how diet is more important than exercise and weight loss. Linda says, some of my heaviest friends run 5K a day, so they're doing lots of exercise, but they're not. Yeah, well, why are they still heavy? They, like to be. They, they need to think about the food. Uh, some general heart-related questions now. Okay. Khalid says, years ago, he used to be uh, a clubber and a dancer, and he suddenly developed an abnormal heartbeat rhythm. Eventually, it went away, but what caused it? Well, that's, that's a difficult one. Yeah, it's, diff I can't, it's, difficult for, it's difficult for me to... So he could be talking about, um, and his GP will know this, something called ectopic beats. And we all get these, they're quite normal phenomenon for a lot of people. And for some, and I see patients all the time, that for certain periods in your life, I've had it as well, you notice your heart skipping a beat. And often it happens at rest or when you're watching TV or lying in bed and it can make people quite worried. Often if they're already worried for some other reason, they're mm -hmm. aware of it. And that's a very benign phenomenon and it has no pathological consequence. So, you know, if people are worried about these sorts of things, they should talk to a doctor. For a lot of people, this is nothing to worry about. And often when they cut out the caffeine and reduce their stress levels, it disappears. So it could have been anything, basically, Kelly. Yeah. Uh, Rosie, does Asim believe that strong emotions or prolonged grief, stress, unresolved trauma can actually have a physical effect on the heart, i.e. can being heartbroken be an actual physical thing? Yeah, so there is actually a condition which I have treated and seen on many occasions called Takatsubo cardiomyopathy. And uh, essentially what happens is acute stress, for whatever reason, it can be grief, it can be a traumatic episode. I know some, a patient I saw whose house had basically burned down um, can actually mimic a heart attack. Wow. and temporarily cause the heart muscle to lose its ability to pump properly and make people quite sick uh, in the initial phases. But often, more often than not, it gets better. And that's cool. So that, yes, actually, that is a phenomenon. It's the true. You believe yeah. that to be true. Um, Eve says, there's advice currently circulating on social media which says, if you think you're having a heart attack, you should deliberately begin coughing vigorously and also breathing deeply because the deep breaths will get oxygen into the lungs and the coughing will squeeze the heart to keep the blood circulating. Is this true? Is that effective? I'm, I'm not aware of that. Um, I think the best thing you can do if you think you're having a heart, heart attack is call 999. Um, what will but, the signs be? Tightness in the chest? Yeah, so the typical symptoms are a central crushing tight chest pain, usually coming on at rest, associated with sweating, pe making people very nauseous. It can go down the arm or into the neck. Um, yes, 999. Uh, and the quicker people can get aspirin in, usually oh, really? we say okay. having aspirin is actually sure. very, potentially very life-saving. Um, I've got a question that I'd like to know, actually. Um, I, I know of you and knew of you because you are someone who sticks your neck out for what you believe in. How tough has that been? Um, it's a good question. I think that uh, there are, there, it has been challenging at times. Mm. Um, but actually, when you know, this is a revolution, really. And there are a lot of people who uh, are in very powerful positions or have gained their power through 
um, really uh, based upon you know promotion of flawed science or got money from it. It's, it's going to be it's difficult to, to change the system. So when you're trying to change the system, then there will be detractors. Um, but I think one of the things I've l noticed and learned is that actually, um, you know, uh, truth ultimately is, uh, is the ultimate power to overcome this. And most people, when you give them the information, see on my journey, I have, you know, made many allies and friends. So many more friends than so-called enemies. But yes, it has been challenging. Absolutely. Absolutely. You'll have to wait for my second book. There's, a, it, there's another book. It'll coming. probably all be exposed in my second book. Okay. We'll look, we'll look forward to that. Uh, good luck to you on your crusade to find the truth, uncover the truth. We've had lots more questions on weight loss, but I'd say if we were going to recap on how to lose weight, live to 100 and avoid a heart attack, it would be... Focus on health, not weight loss. Weight loss will be a side effect because diets generally that cut calories don't work either for your health and people regain the weight. That's why we try to get through something sustainable through Piopi diet, which focuses on health and first and mm -hmm. foremost. So irrespective of your health is going to improve even if you don't lose weight, but you probably will. What was the second thing? No, it's uh, <laughs> avoiding heart attack, leading to 100 and losing weight. It's probably all the same. Yeah, absolutely. 80% of heart disease is lifestyle. So quit. So, so when we have our plates at dinner time, we want lots of veg, yeah. a bit of protein, yeah. some healthy fats. Yeah, which is olive oil ideally, butter's fine as well. Okay. Don't snack. Don't, don't snack. Yeah, don't snack. So probably eat till you're full, but don't snack. Okay. That's the key thing. Oh. So you want to eat two to three meals I a day. Um, but but if you are going to snack, snack on something healthy like a bit of nuts or a bit of cheese or whatever. I snack on some lots of olives. Something. Fine. I think sometimes Fine. I overeat. If you're, if you're going to snack, eat something healthy. Um, um, and that's and the other thing is think about you know stress and social relationships, good sleep. Uh, we didn't talk about this on this occasion. It's something that's a bit taboo in in British culture, but. You know, there are actually a lot of data about the benefits with the, obviously in the right circumstances, not encouraging people to be promiscuous, but regular sex is actually very beneficial mm -hmm. for hearts. Mm -hmm. um, so, but it's a, really a marker of good, strong social relationships ultimately. And I think you have to think a little bit more about that. Okay. I see it's been wonderful to speak to you and come here to your clinic in Harley Street. Um, I hope we haven't interrupted your schedule of seeing lots of patients today. <laughs> um, I'm going to lean forward, Facebookers, because I need to stop the live feed. But thank you so much for joining us. And join me again for another episode of Health Hackers in a couple of weeks. Bye.